All right. Good evening, and good evening, and welcome to episode Straighty One Eighty from the Racing Line Podcast. Um, the night after the Spanish Grand Prix. Um, so cringiest cringe lord of the planet. So um, just welcome back to myself after last week's hiatus. Um, no one else will, so I might as well, I might as well just greet myself in. Joe and Harry, thanks for being back on the pod. Um, thanks for steering the ship last week. Um, and let's just jump straight into it. So Spanish Grand Prix last night. Verstappen commanding win. Um, a little bit of trouble for Perez in the qualifying session, which was quite an engaging qualifying session, it has to be said. Um, two Mercedes, second and third, definitely looked like there was a little bit of improvement uh, in that package. So we'll talk about that a bit tonight. But, boys, just initial thoughts on the race. I thought it was a great race. I thought there was not much more than... I was expecting that happened, to be honest. I thought it was a better race. Actually, I thought it was a better race than what I was expecting. Um, I think in my prediction, in my predictions, I predicted Checker to come back and come second still, which um which didn't happen. And I was pretty happy about that as well. Uh, I think there was quite a bit of overtaking. I think the chicane um removal on that last corner really helped the racing as well. And all in all, I thought it was quite a uh, decent uh, race to watch, to be honest. I stayed up and watched it. There you go. So, Harry, your opinion slightly varies to Joe's. So do you want to to throw in your 50 cents? Better than previous Spanish Grand Prix, that's for sure. But um, you said it beforehand, the highlights package was all overtakes down in turn one because of the straight. Like there wasn't much happening throughout the rest of the track. Mm. The most interesting part for me was the different strategies. I think the the fact that it was a two-stop race was probably the most intriguing part. It, it threw in a bit of jeopardy there. But in terms of on-track action, um, not much other than DRS passes, mm. which was disappointing. But some really strong performances. I think Oscar showed that he can race wheel to wheel with most people on the grid, even though he finished 13th. Um, like you said, the Mercedes looked strong. Uh, surprised that Fernando wasn't able to make more ground, to be honest. So that was something I found intriguing. And I did want to touch on it, but Checo, I don't, I said it after, I think, was it the fourth race when everyone was saying he's going to mount the championship, championship challenge? Hmm. I don't think this guy is at the level that they need him to be. And he only looks good because the car is so dominant. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think he's at the level they need him to be. I just don't think he's at the level of mounting a championship challenge. Um, it's in, like a third time this year that he's had a pretty sort of stupid um, mistake in qualifying that's left him, you know, out of position. And I think what this race showed us with um, the upgrades that Mercedes have made is that maybe it might be track dependent, but it's not 
for granted that he can race his way back through the pack. Um, we saw that at Monaco, which was a bit of a um, – we weren't expecting it as much at Monaco. But I think coming into this race, if he had told me he was going to start in – was it 11th? Where did Checo start? 11th. Yeah. If he told me he was going to start in 11th, I, I think I put him predicted to race back to um, to second. Uh, so, yeah, I think this year he'll be fine. But I think Red Bull themselves might be having a few, you know, internal discussions about him because realistically, if this sort of becomes the norm and it isn't more of an, of an anomaly, then um, I can't see them sticking of someone who's going to make uh, sort of these kind of characteristic, uh, uncharacteristic mistakes um, and make that into a pattern, I suppose, because it's yeah. going to hurt them when all the teams catch up. What did, yeah. you think, what did you think of his ability to drive through the field though? Because he did, I mean, listen, you can say he did it or the car did it, but I mean, there was a number of moves that he made into that first corner where that Red Bull was just, you know, Looked really easy to get past a few of the cars, the, the Alpha Tauris, the the um, Alpha Romeo, the um, the Alpine as well. But the interesting thing for me was even like you can say that he might not be the one to mount a championship push, and it's probably right purely based on the dominance that Max is displaying right now. Um, but he did, you know, he was able to to bridge an eighteen second gap, you know, um, on. I think he started 18 seconds behind when he got uh, to fourth on the, uh, you know, fourth in the race. He was 18 seconds behind um, George Russell, and then he finished, you know, three or two and a half seconds behind him. So, you know, there's some serious pace that you know he was able to use to close down that gap. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think him having pace is what we're we're not we don't think he doesn't have pace. Mm. Um, and we expect him to race up to the back of those Mercedes as well. Mm. But in terms of the pattern of mistakes, when you would expect the grid to sort of the gaps in the grid to shrink, like me and Harry were discussing last week with Stroll and um, sort of that strength of driver lineup, you don't want someone who's making those kind of mistakes as your second driver because when, when the grid sort of compresses, you need your second driver to be best of the rest if you're going for a team's championship. Mm-hmm. When you look at um, Mercedes with Hamilton and and um, and Russell, yeah, they're not on pace, but they're very consistently finishing back-to-back. Mm-hmm. Um, so you sort of know that they're both maximising that package. They qualify very close. They race very close. They have very similar pace. Um, Checo races really well sometimes qualifies really well, but also he's having other races where his, his teammate is first and he might be last or his teammate is first and he's 13th or 11th or whatever it is. And they're, and they're all driver mistakes. They're not like un, unlucky or him getting punted. They're all sort of him in those pressure moments, I would say over committing and then under delivery. Mm. He's done so, it a few times this year. Like think back to Robert Park as well. Another big turn, another big talking point for this week's race was the um, was the Mercedes upgrade. Um, you know they finished second and third. They're probably a little bit, I don't want to say lucky, but they got some benefits from you know obviously Perez being out of position, um, Lando 
Norris from third just, you know, shitting the bed. Um, they he, was, he, was in a, he was in an accident. Yeah, but, you know. It's unfortunate. Unfortunate. Yeah. I don't know. Um, you put yourself in those situations as well. Um, but what did you guys make of the Mercedes package this week? I mean, he's, I think Hamilton finished, I want to say, 18 seconds behind. Um, 24. 24, there you go. So 24 seconds behind. George was another eight seconds back. Um, they definitely looked racy against the Ferrari, though, um, of Saints. So what do you guys make of, of Mercedes' upgrade package? Is it trending in the right direction? Something to get excited about yet? Yeah, I, I think so. I think um, I don't think we're going to see a, a massive jump toward the Red Bulls. I think what we're going to see is more even competition for those second and third places. Um, I can't see them bridging that twenty-four second gap for the rem- in the remainder of this season. But the fact that they were closer to the Aston Martins this this race bodes well for that kind of battle. I think. I think How are you, Joe. What you I, I'm, I'm way more optimistic for them, to be honest. I mean, I don't, I'm not expecting them to even win a race this year. Mm. But for when, when I think when a team brings an upgrade package to a track that all the teams know so well through testing, and you've seen sort of Ferrari bring their car for the last two years <laughs> there and not be able to unlock the pace that the Mercedes was, and this was their sort of first weekend with that, or second weekend, but like first proper weekend with that, new upgrades package. There was a few things I think that was really surprising. Qualifying pace wasn't mm. as sort of sharp as the um, as the Astons or the Ferraris, which mm. is fair enough. Probably it's going to take a bit of time for them to unlock the true potential of that car in terms of qualifying pace. But then in terms of race pace, both drivers were really happy with the tyre wear, so they were able to run longer than everyone else, extend those hard tyres, and then that was... Um, able to give them a much uh, more aggressive shot on the quicker tyres. Uh, and both drivers reported the same thing. Like, man, we're really happy with where our tyres are at the moment. Leave us out. They were able to overcut the Ferraris. Um, and really, once they sort of did that and they were sort of using the um, the softer tyres on those shorter runs, they didn't even look like they were going to get troubled by anyone other than Checo, to be honest. Mm. Uh when I th- when I look at the championship now, I think if this is where they're starting from, I th- I think they're going to keep that second place comfortably in the championship. To be honest, um, we were me and Harry were discussing last week that they were already in second place and they were driving probably the fourth best car on the grid. Um, so for them, I think to bring this kind of upgrade and it work better than those other t- two teams at a track that they should have been better set up for. Mm. I think is a bit daunting for Aston and then even more so for Ferrari because I think out of all the teams who are expecting more from this year, I think they're going to have a year where they're playing fourth fiddle. I'm interested to know, sorry, I'm interested to know whether the damage that Fernando sustained to his floor in qualifying impacted his race pace because we know that he's been so much quicker than Lance all season. Mm. Um, if he his home track. Yeah, if he was able to extract more pace out of that in the race, if he didn't have damage, so it'd be interesting to see at the next race where they're kind of at. Did they not if have they, a if they didn't change the foot, they might not have changed it due to the salary cap. Like, it, yeah, it, it definitely could make sense. Like, I was, I thought that about Fernando. To be honest, hmm. he looked so he looked so 
um, uncompetitive is mm. probably the right word. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of those cars who sustained floor damage probably had that problem, but he wasn't really able to race past anyone, to be honest. And no. uh, did he, he end up finishing behind Stroll or in, just in front of him? I think behind him. Uh, wasn't yeah, it? behind him. Yeah. yeah he so had that radio message where he said he wasn't going to attack Stroll, even though he was within DRS. Yeah. So I think he knew. And if it becomes a norm, I'd be interested. I'd be surprised. But I mean, still, for Mercedes, I think they're going to take it. And, and like we said last week, Stroll isn't helping the constructors mm. championship for them. So Fernando can race as hard as he wants, but I think the double points finishes that Mercedes are usually getting still gets them uh, a higher combined what's points the, in most races. Yeah, do you have a do you know what the points count is right now? I think Red Bull's on, I think, 250, give or take. Mm. And then I think Mercedes is on like 130, 140, give or take. I meant between the Mercedes and the Aston Martin right now. I think uh, Harry's so pulled it up. Aston's on 134 and the Mercedes are on 152. Okay. And we expect that to just increase based on this upgrade pretty much for the rest of the year then, right? Yeah. I expect, I expect it to, to increase as well, mainly due to the fact that Stroll is in the other car. Well, not... Alonso's got 99 of those 134 points. That's what I mean. It's very skewed. Whereas Hamilton and Russell are on 87 and 65, so it's a lot more even. Mm. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, any other... What did you make of Yuki Sonoda's race? He seemed to like seem like he was a little bit racy. Had a bit of an all-Asian all-star match between... Guan Yu Zhou going into turn one, took him wide, got a penalty. Don't really know why he got the penalty. Um, I yeah, I know. He, thought he was leaving enough room there. Um, that was, you know, a pretty good um, Japanese versus Chinese battle. What did you make of his race? I thought, I think Yuki's been uncharacteristically, con- oh, I don't want to say like he's inconsistent but I think this year hopefully this has been a turn for him for the best in terms of consistency and really yeah I just I'm choking on some water Um, I think really he's taken a massive step up uh, since DeVries has come in that car um, and sort of maximised the points that are on offer for him Mm. Um, doesn't hasn't made many qualifying mistakes doesn't hasn't made many racing mistakes. Uh, like I was particularly surprised with him. I was even very surprised, uh, pretty happy as well with the um, Alpine boys. To be honest, I mean their car isn't well, I th- their car isn't where it needs to be, but I think they're maximising the points that they can get. Uh, especially when you look at getting two cars in the top ten, and then you have someone like Leclerc who stuck. Leclerc, who struggled so much through that race as well. Um, I think for him, same thing as Checo. I would have expected him to at least race into the top 10. So for that not to happen, I think that's pretty disappointing on, I think that would have been pretty disappointing on his you know, behalf, but also where him and the team go. Like it's, it has not been a great season. Can you pull up the, the driver's championship H for a second and tell me how many points Leclerc's got? Compared to yep. science. So 
Uh, making of Leclerc this year. It's a curious, like it's a, a curious case. Say it's almost like the man. He looks like a shadow of his former self. So science is on fifty-eight. Leclerc's on forty-two. So I've got so an interesting. Fun, I've got an interesting theory about Leclerc, but I want to run it by you guys. So this was the guy that came into Ferrari, wrecked a lot of cars, but just wrecked a lot of cars with, you know, really just un, you know, without tapering his ambition, you know, like he was kind of just winning it or binning it. And I feel like, I don't know, but I feel like he's got to the point now where I don't want to say he's experienced enough, but he has experienced enough of that attitude and, and kind of binning the car and kind of coming away with nothing. And I just don't know if now that the car isn't in the place where it should be, he's kind of got this internal struggle between how hard he pushes the car but also trying to keep it out, you know, of an accident. And that's kind of affecting that raw speed that we've seen from him in the past. So I don't know if it's, I almost feel like he can only, like he performs when he's like a lot of drivers has full confidence in the car, but also just given his history with accidents, when he doesn't have that confidence or, you know, when the car isn't as he wants it, Case in point, like Paul Ricard last year, when he went from hero to zero very quickly, um, whether there's kind of like a bit of internal conflict, there might be a bit of frustration with the team and all of those things are just compounding to someone who's trying to be responsible, trying to finish race, finish the race, do the best things for the team. But in turn, that's also hampering his ability to maximise the output of the car um, while keeping it on the track. Um, you go H first. I've been rambling. No, no, I, I don't know what's happening with him, and it could be psychological, like what you're saying, Anth, like because mm. he's bent it so many times. Mm. I honestly think that Leclerc has the same. I don't know if you want to call it a problem, but the same sort of dilemma that Danny Rick has. That was going to be my a, point. There's a feeling that he wants from the car. Yeah, and if he doesn't have that feeling sort of teetering on the edge of adhesion and then losing it completely. I think where Danny Rick would just not race, like his race pace was severely hampered. I think Leclerc's is even more that he just doesn't know where that boundary is at all. Um, and he, he sort of makes a lot of sort of unforced crashes because he's giving it too much at stages where he shouldn't... Uh, where he probably should just go to like ninety five percent or ninety percent, and he's he's just trying I mean, he so hard. Maybe to give it I don't know if he can race like that. I don't know if he can race at like I feel like his driving style. Like I don't know if he can drive close to the limit without going over it. But it's almost like he needs a car that is like super set up for him. He needs he a car that maximizes the most out of it. Otherwise, he just doesn't have kind of what it takes to be competitive compared to someone like, let's say, Carlos Sainz, who raced for a long time at Toro Rosso, for a long time at Renault. McLaren, when McLaren was pretty good, but when he started at McLaren, they weren't so good. He's had a lot of experiences driving underperforming cars well and maximising the most of an underperforming car or perceived underperforming car, as opposed to someone like 
Leclerc, who all the way through, like he was amazing during his early junior career, but he was always racing for Prima and ART, you know, the best teams uh, in those smaller categories. He did one year in um, Alfa Romeo, which was a learning year. So there's no pressure in that regard anyway. He's straight up to the main team after that. So he hasn't had that history of kind of driving for an underperforming team and just having the expectation to maximise a result as opposed to someone like um, Carlos Sainz has. And he's kind of used to, he's, he's in a weird way, Sainz, is, his whole career has been in that environment um, and just kind of maximising results, bringing points home for the team and, and kind of going from there. I feel... I feel like he's getting frustrated with Ferrari. I don't know if you're sure. get, if you're getting that sense, yeah. you know, understandably. But I feel like that's hampering his performance as well. I feel like he's trying to communicate with them what he wants, and they're not giving it to him. And it's, I, I think this if they don't get that car sorted soon, I can see him moving on. To be honest, but the question is where right now? There isn't anywhere for him to go. To be honest, there's nowhere better to go. Unless Hamilton was to leave. Yeah, that was going to be my thing. Once Hamilton retires, like, wouldn't you have a Leclerc and Russell? Um, the only thing for that works in Ferrari's favour is loyalty. Like, they've given, they've, they've had, like, sponsored him mm. throughout his, like, he's been a Ferrari development giant driver for the longest time. I mean, everything that he's owed in his career is pretty much to, you know, what Ferrari's given him. It's pretty similar, I guess, to Daniel Ricciardo in a way. So you wouldn't say that he's not capable of moving. Um, But they definitely invested a lot in him for him to kind of walk away. But his generation, what are they now, 24, 25, 26, around that age? They're not getting any younger. Like if they're not in a championship winning car soon. Well, this is the reality of the situation. This is kind of what I keep coming back to. Like, realistically, you're going to have a generation. If, if hypothetically, say Red Bull stays where they are in there, even if the rest of the team was to claw back half a second of them, but they managed to stay even a quarter of a second ahead of mm. the next best team, you know, over the course of a 60 lap race, if they're starting at the front, that's 15 seconds by the end of the race. Um, and, the, and the thing comes, you've got all these talented drivers. You've only got two cars that have the potential to win a championship. You know this. It can be said that this is Formula One. You know Mercedes in the in the eighties, um, Williams in the nineties, Ferraris in the two thousands, Red Bulls in the two thousand and tens, and then Mercedes in the two thousand and twenties. Unless you're in one of those top two cars, you've got a hell of hell of a lot of quality drivers who are never going to achieve um, kind of a championship status that they're worthy of. Um, so in that regard, if Ferrari don't get their shit together, he could become another one of those mm. super talented drivers that just never in his, is in a position to to win it. And I mean, think about Ferrari, with the exception of Schumacher, realistically, they've never had a driver in a position to do that. Now they got close with Massa. They got close. Well, they did it with Raikkonen, but you know, up until the last race, he wasn't even in the hunt. So the fact that they won mm. it with him was more fluke than than um, grand design. Um, but he might become just, another one of them. Did you just call winning a world championship a fluke? I No, I didn't. Yeah, I did. I would I, know. I wouldn't say it's a fluke, but I would say it's more based on um, 
like, like not I don't want to say lucky circumstances, but you know, if Hamilton doesn't put it in the kitty litter in bloody China when he's favourite to win the championship a race early, then it probably doesn't go to that. Um, now they won the championship, but I wouldn't say it was because they were the dominant team that year. If I'm being honest, you got to think halfway through the year, Montoya leaves, Pedro De La Rosa comes into the McLaren. That's super competitive. Um, you know, a whole raft of other things occur as well. Kubix is looking like he could win the championship. He breaks his legs in, in Canada. Um, so there was a lot more, you know, strong candidates to win the championship who, for whatever reason, you know, fell out some way during the season. Um, anyway. So, what a time. Yeah, good times. Great times. You know, different winners. Smaller cars. Smaller car. Oh, mate, I was looking at a video two days ago. I don't want to, I don't want to become this guy, but <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, the Formula I'm One become, cars from the late 2000s. Oh. I'm gonna become I'm gonna become you today again, Anthony. Tell me. This is this is my uh come to Jesus moment, I think, from what you've been saying for the last couple of weeks. What is Joe? So I watched the um, Formula One race this week. With this week, mm. I watched the Formula Two race from this weekend as well. That was pretty good. I watched that, which as was a well. fantastic race. Mm. I watched um, the IndyCar race today, mm. and I watched a Super Formula race on Saturday on Motorsport TV. A replay. Mm. Just because I had nothing else to do, um, mm. you, might, you sound like you're a single man, mate. I love I it. Know I, you've got two kids, mate. Well, you just got to sort of put your priorities straight, which I seem to do better <laughs> than you. So, um, <laughs> I had a pretty good weekend. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so what my come to Jesus moment was? You've been, I've been very against this whole idea of spec F1 cars. Um, <sighs> And then I and then I listened to a conversation with uh, Esteban Ocon and Maddie and Tommy. Uh, oh, the new, the new, what, their the new F1, show, their new one. Yeah, whatever it's called, Maddie and Tommy something. Mm. And they asked him. They said, "What would you P1 like?" Or yeah, P one. That's it. What would you like? Um, what change would you like in Formula One? And Esteban Ocon said, "I want." Uh, spec f1 cars and um they said like do you think that would be a pretty good would do you think that'd be a good product for the fans and he said if you watch why would like if you watch f2 and what product that is and that's a spec car he said uh like why wouldn't it be because you just have all the drivers who are probably supposed supposed to be the best of the best uh, in equal machinery, mm. and then I was watching, and then I was thinking about the IndyCar race, spec cars, two different engines, uh, Super Formula, spec cars, three different engines, um, Formula Two spec cars, same engine. If F1 had spec chassis, and then say that you could run uh, manufacturer engine gearbox, maybe hybrid system built to a spec chassis do you think the manufacturedness like the whole sort of manufacturer idea of that sort of concoction 
would be enough to keep the uh, the manufacturers we had in the sport now mm. still involved. So this was this is you've actually gone um, further than the argument that I've made. So my yeah. argument for um, so as as a student of the sport, uh, someone who can't. <laughs> so this was my. This was my thing to keep it relevant for manufacturers so that there is still the DNA of Formula One and the DNA of, uh, you know, designing your own product, manufacturing uh, if you want to, uh, rather than giving a spec car with a spec engine, et cetera. Um, ra- rather, sorry, rather than the, the, um, than the, the spec being kind of what holds the formula together that a lot of those other series that you've spoken about do, the actual formula would just be a lot more stipulated. So there are ways to measure downforce. There are ways to to use um, torque curves and engine mapping to have car, to, you know, to get engines that operate in the same way for the most part, look at supercars. Um, so my, what my whole idea is to make Formula One spec isn't to stop manufacturers from manufacturing, but saying this is the torque curve that your engine needs to work at, this is the RPM that it can produce, this is how we want it to produce it, so that they're all producing it in the same way. Uh, you can still have DRS or you can have a push-to-pass system. This is how much um, downforce your front wing can generate. This is how much downforce your back wing can generate. You can generate it however you want. Uh, when we do, a, you know, um, flow simulations, this is how much overall uh, downforce your car can generate, how much it can generate under the car, the diffuser. So they are going to stipulate what the um, product of the car or what the outcome is going to be for each of the cars. And then it's up to the team to produce a car up to that standard. Now, if they overproduce, then Formula One can pair it back. If they underproduce, and believe me, some of them might, then that's kind of the onerous is on the team to build it up. So yeah, rather than well, making it spec, because that's not going to be just, something that entices I teams, you, I would I say we it's really highly stipulated as to kind of the levels that they're producing to. And if they want to keep going further and spending more money on it, they can, but great, you've, you've made your engine 30% more powerful we're just going to detune it so that it operates at that particular thing. Or great, you've made your car, you know, X X amount more downforce, go redesign it um, so that it's, you know, up to code. So the onerous is actually on achieving those benchmarks. And then realistically, you'd only have to test it once over the course of the year because it's something that can be designed. It doesn't have to have, you'll save money because you don't have, you know, development over the course of the year, it's it's ready to go by the start of the season. And realistically, once you've got that formula down pat, you can run that car for three, four years without having to spend any money on it. So that makes it a lot more, uh, you know, money saving as well if you want to make Formula One more efficient. So run the whole formula for three years, five years, my, whatever. My whole argument there was based on the idea that, not the argument, just the thought that watching all the you know sort of things back to back when i'm watch when i was watching the sort of super g super formula i wasn't thinking that they were all the same chassis i was just watching the racing when you're watching formula 2 
the idea of them being all the same body kit sort of doesn't really didn't really doesn't come into my mind sort of just the racing because yeah, the reality is once the race starts all you're thinking about is the different teams and you're looking at the colors you're not looking at the different des- maybe yeah, you're looking you're, at the different designs look, but if, on the front nose but realistically you're more looking at the team that you want to support the drivers you want to follow the colors of their car and you're trying to just see what they're doing it's got that's, that's once the saying, racing like, starts the design means nothing when you watch Formula Two, you see you're pretty much seeing a lot of Formula One colours anyway. There's three Red Bull mm. cars, there's two Sauber cars, there's Alpines. two Alpines. There's a I don't know if there's a Williams car this year anymore, but like you're seeing those colours anyway. I don't know. I don't think it's going to happen. But watching all the other thing, like all the other ones, giving them a little bit more sort of spectrum, uh, sort of scope in terms of engine, hybrid, and gearbox. Then, as a fan, you know that the cars that are better, it's all to do with engine engineering or reliability, gearbox design, hybrid, and and sort of um, hybrid deployment. But um, here's another here's another hypothetical. But the actual, there's no aero difference, and I'm not saying that's the answer to all the questions. I'm just saying if it, I think I've come around to that idea, and also the other thing I thought of was we're talking about sort of saving money, salary, uh, sort of, you know, minimizing costs. Then you have um, the, the, the sort of ability to mass produce all these components of car. And instead of every team having their own spares and like their own, you know, army of spares sort of switching out, bringing, bringing is, is, should be a lot cheaper as well. Mm. Um, but I was going to say, would that, Sort of, I sort of identity of racing be something that you'd be interested in watching yourself if it was to go that far, dude. My my like interest in racing. That's has- more for H. That's more for H. Oh, sorry. Okay, sorry. You had a monologue. Yeah, look, I think um, you got more chance of getting a chassis as a spec than you do dictating what their engine output is and all that sort of stuff. Hundred percent. Um, just because there's how many manufacturers now that are coming into the sport from 2026. So I don't imagine. Well, they still adhere to, they still have to adhere to engine regulations as we speak. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I, as much as we'd love to say it, like even Brundle this morning said, well, I watched it this morning. Even Brundle yesterday said, um, DRS is getting a bit too powerful on some tracks and maybe we need to limit it to a hundred seconds per race per, like, mm. per car. And they, have to opt when to use it. Mm. Um, the it fact that the fact that Brundle's talking about it now as well because he's listening to the Racing Line Pod. That's right. We spoke about this six months ago. Um, well, if you, even if you watch, if you said you watched the F two race, everything that happens in the F two race, they still have DRS, but sort of that's the spec chassis. I think the thing that is still so understated is the fact that when those when you have a, a tire that goes off quick. Mm. Like I don't understand why this hasn't been caught on to, and I think it's just because the, the tire manufacturers don't want tires that are going off because it looks bad on sort of their product. Um, but in terms of the racing, like that F two race this weekend was was awesome. There was mm. so much you know strategy involved. Tire strategy came in play. So much overtaking as well. Um, like the blueprint is there. They're just doing it on a smaller scale. As Even as, even the size of the cars, they're able to overtake around different parts of the track. and They can go three wide through that 
through that um, really long, what is it, right-hander turn three. Yeah. You know, they're going three wide through there. Good luck getting F1, getting two F1 cars, you know, pretty much safely but through this there. Is my, this is my thought with, um, like, the DRS. So, we, the yes, the claim can be made that DRS is overpowered, right? But if you look at any DRS battles between cars of similar performance, it's not as pronounced as a highlight package would suggest, right? So if you, if you, for example, looked at the battle between an Alfa Romeo and an Alfa Tauri that are both relatively the same level of performance, it wasn't like one lap and they made it past. It was multiple laps of trying to get close enough to make something happen, having to move into a braking zone. Sometimes it came off, sometimes it didn't. What we are seeing though, particularly with the DRS, is that when you've got cars that are out of, like think about, where the, the majority of overtakes came from. It came from Fernando Alonso, who was out of position, came from Sergio Perez, who was out of position, George Russell, who was slightly out of position, um, coming up to third, Perez coming up to fourth, Alonso making his way up from wherever he did as well. But for the most part, you're not having, uh, I wouldn't say that there's a like a oversaturation of DRS moves on teams that are kind of close together, but what we do have is we've got a Red Bull that is extremely quickly right now. Uh, we've got a um, Mercedes that it, and, and a, a Aston Martin that still some level below that. So when that Red Bull goes past those cars, it still looks, you know, dramatic, um, but they're equally doing that to the, to the tier below them as well. But once you get to the Ferrari and, you know, some of the tank cars around that and then, you know, further down, the um, – like the the level of ease with which those moves are happening is not really nearly as as um, mm. as visible. Um, but the thing is, because we've got such a top heavy and dramatic differences in those top performing teams compared to everyone else, compared to themselves, etc., you're getting a lot of moves, particularly when cars are out of place. That kind of look, um, they just look too easy. And the thing is, you've got the best drivers in the cars that are making a look. I mean, this. I, I genuinely think this. You've got someone like Max Verstappen who is uber competitive, right? Um, he's, you know, we know how competitive he is because he bloody raged quit on the 24 hours of Le Mans race that it was happening last month because they couldn't get their servers fixed. You know, he's a guy that loves to compete, et cetera, uh, in everything that he does. Uh, and he's out there at the front by himself winning by 20 seconds. Now, mm-hmm. you know, you might have some drivers who <clears throat> are all about the, um, making that seem like such a difficult thing to do um, and, uh, you know, doing it for seven, eight, nine, ten years and and just wanting to reap the rewards of being the greatest driver of all time. Um, but then you've got someone like him who I think would say, you know, if this is how it's going to be, I'll win two, three championships and then I'll have money and I'll just go do the kind of races I want. I race with my dad. I'll start my own team. I'll try to get into some, some of those competitions that you're talking about joe you know something like wec or even sports cars where there is that competition where there is that natural kind of you know everyone is in it with a chance on their day um because he has nothing to prove he's not the kind of guy who's got you know any other motives for racing apart from competing mm. uh, and i think for and formula one in general if they don't get on top of them on top of this notion that we keep harping on about could lose someone like him sooner than they think because he's not motivated by money, nor is he motivated by the like prestige or grandeur of being the greatest driver. He just wants to compete. 
Yeah, he's already said that too. He won't stick around if it continues like this. Hmm. I think he might be he might be the first driver, maybe other than Fernando Alonso on the F1 grid, that I think um like when push comes to shove, is so not interested in the politics and would happily sort of jump ship to a less prestigious but more competitive championship just to once again prove he was the best if he felt like the challenge of Formula 1 had somehow eluded him, Mm. Um, which would be a massive, like it would be a massive blow to sort of the image of Formula 1 if, say, your, your best driver at the time didn't leave because he got old or he lost his seat or there just wasn't a seat for him at any given time, but because the challenge was no longer there and went looking for it in, a, in, a, in what many would perceive to be a, uh, a, a weaker championship in terms of the hierarchy of racing for maybe not even making money, maybe just because he's made all his money at F1 just to, you know, be part of it. You know, um, I, I would say this as well. I don't know if there's been, I mean, I guess the, Hamilton against Rosberg uh, against Botas years were similar to this, where you've got like a you know out and out favorite, and you've got just a de facto number two who's kind of just there to pick up the pieces. I mean, even in Schumacher's time, he was dominant, but like there was still like if you look at the, I guess there was one a two thousand and four, I think it was he was or two thousand and three, I think he was super dominant, might have won eighty percent of the races, but apart from that. I don't think we've ever seen a team or a car win races with this ease. Well, um, I, I think because even think, in like the Hamilton Rosberg years, the the rivalry that they had and the dislike they had for each other kind of fueled each other. Like there was a running story, there was ebbs and flows. Whereas right now, and you know, one of them would win one week, the other one with the other week. Whereas right and now, was, and there was a Ferrari lead. Pardon? And there was and there was Ewan Vettel in the Ferrari sort of shit the bet himself and, and lost that championship rather than mm. Mercedes winning it. Mm. 2018. Think, yeah, I think I'll I think this might be a good point to sort of finish off the podcast on in, in if we're discussing this. Mm. Right. And I know Harry doesn't really care about this. So this shows that there's ways to go in terms of the marketing of of yeah. it. But this week is the 24 hours of Le Mans and Harry won't be watching it. But me and Anthony will be at our brother's wedding watching it on the same table. <laughs> um, I went and updated my phone to a much bigger screen just so when I'm chilling <laughs> on the table, we're going to be in ultra HD, uh, 120 hertz refresh rate, mate. Hey, is not going to be able to keep up with this. Um, or Stan, whatever it is now. But we're, we're entering now an era in sports car racing where you could pretty much, there are more manufacturers in there now, but more even so on the way where I think this race this weekend is going to be a massive test to um, not the compatibility, compatibility is a wrong word, but the balance of, of really what these cars are built for, a 24 hours endurance race around Le Mans. I mean, this year we've got Ferrari, Toyota, Porsche, Cadillac, and then you've got your Glickenhaus and uh, Van Wall there as well. But 
on the dawn of this, we're going to see Alpine unveil a car. We know that BMW will be there next year as well. Um, do you think that if the um, because I, I honestly believe the the opening shot of these cars coming through on the first lap through the through the um, first couple of corners of the Bugatti track and then down onto the Mulsanne straight is going to be an amazing, you know, bit of film, just an amazing film clip in itself. But do you think if the balance and, and the competitiveness of these cars is really on show for the world that we might have, I mean, a lot of racers who would be tempted into sort of going that route if the, um, the door of Formula 1 doesn't really open in time and instead of sort of uh, waiting, just jumping that way, um, maybe probably just to make a living, you know, a comfortable living earlier. But I'm thinking I'm, of drivers I'm, like... I don't, if you're a driver, I don't think that will happen, but this is, I think, the bigger consideration for me. So you've got Formula 1 that has done a lot of work to cultivate the fan base they have and they need to be commended for that. They need to be... Because realistically, when you think about drive to survive, not just other racing series now, but other sports in general have adopted a similar model purely based on that foresight. So a lot of kudos has to go to Formula One for that. This is what I think could happen to Formula One moving forward though. So you've got, you know, a larger audience than you've ever had before. And right now we'll say it's maxed out at a hundred percent of whatever that audience is right now. Uh, and you're going to have it's your die saturation. Yeah, you're going to have your diehards that are always going to be involved. Let's say they make up twenty percent. You've got those who are interested in it from a pop culture percentage. Let's say that's sixty percent, and then you might have another twenty percent who are uh, racers. Okay, so I reckon that sixty percent of pop culture imagination, the luster of the racing, all that kind of stuff, is always going to be there. So you're always going to have a large formula one audience but from what it is right now it wouldn't surprise me if you know in five years time we're talking about a decrease in um in popularity and what i think could happen if it doesn't rectify this issue sooner than it did the last regulations which took 10 years essentially for us to get to something close to competitive is now that these other sports that motorsports particularly that you've spoken about are more accessible Right. I mean, IndyCar has never been easy to watch in Australia. You've never had more access to as many sessions and like qualifying practice. The race are all accessible now. It used to just be on Fox, the race. If you got every race, it wasn't even a surefire thing till McLaughlin came in. WEC, if you've got Stan again, it's part of your package. So these racing series now are more accessible than ever before. And I don't know, if you're someone who just loves racing. Uh, and the competition of it all, will, and you start kind of seeing some of the other stuff that's out there, it wouldn't surprise me if Formula One lost some of its kind of um, motorsport passionate, like passionate motorsport fans to other sports series or racing series purely based on their competitiveness. And right now, IndyCar is definitely on the incline uh, and it's getting more and more exposure uh, around the world purely based on, I mean, if you look at the Indy 500 last year, I think there was something like uh, 18 to 20 different nationalities on the grid mm. for Indy last week. 
how good is that for that particular sport that used to be purely American slash South American, you know, Latin, you know, Latin. Um, and you've got WEC that is going to, you know, when people see Le Mans this year, um, and the diversity of the, um, prototype class and even next year when it, you know, blows up again with the other new manufacturers coming in, um, I think that's going to have to, like if Formula One doesn't react to that, um, well then I'd, I think the strategic genius of uh, Liberty or what we thought was strategic genius with how they've revolutionized how F1 interacts with social media and kind of the whole Netflix plan that they established, um, I don't think they'll be as, like it's going to tarnish that reputation if 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 those adjustments aren't made. I think respectfully, I don't think Le Mans or WEC will ever get anywhere near Formula One in terms of popularity. But as someone, and you guys have opened my eyes to IndyCar. Dude, for WEC, like someone who... Be, sorry. Yeah, I, I, I get the... It, it's amazing and all that. No, but I even up until think... the 90s, even up until the 90s, the Group C era in Le Mans kind of had the same... It had the same aura Respect as level. Formula One. It's just that yeah. the sports cast has gone through its own lull that it's had to come out of. Yeah, but I also think um, time and it, it, people's attention spans and all that kind of stuff, there's just not enough time to dedicate to multiple forms of motorsport. But I do think IndyCar, as you guys have brought in my horizons with IndyCar, the racing and the product itself that is one category that I think if they get their shit together could potentially take away fans from formula one, 100% because the racing is phenomenal. The tracks are, the tracks are awesome. Like they're always, it's track and grass. There's no runoff. It's, it's proper race. I, I actually love Vindicar now. Um, I, I, I think it's that, fucking crazy that F1 is popping off in America now. When they've when, got Indy. When IndyCar has never been so good. Um, Could F1 be popping off because the IndyCar product has wet the appetite for open it, wheels in a it, way it, that it, has never it done might so before? Be, but I think at the same time, I think if IndyCar was, wasn't proud and was somehow and, and, was, and thought about it strategically... I think all double they would header. need is to do a double header at one of those three races. Vegas. You know what's really interesting, right? They raced at Detroit this weekend, yeah? If yeah. you look at the layout for the Detroit track, it is all 90-degree turns. And if that was a Formula 1 track, you'd say, this is going to be one of the most boring races I've watched. Right? It was an ugly-ass track as well. It looked – It mm. looked. I, I remember watching the initial drive through. I'm like, man, I don't know if this is going to be – like an engaging race. Now there was a lot of safety cars, probably a little bit too much. First time they've raced there. It's normally what happens on a street circuit, but there was a lot of awesome overtakings on a track like that. And what it shows me is that if you've got, like we keep talking about systems in place that um, curtail and curb performance so that driver skill and 
the element of unpredictability. It was a bouncy track. You know, tires were going off. There were marbles that were collecting. You know, if you allow the track, not like we keep the word we keep using, to be unmanicured, the cars to be hard to handle, you know, tires to go off very, very quickly to very different compounds. If you allow for all of that jeopardy in a race, um, you can get a really good performance from a track that from a layout looked pretty uninspiring. You know what, um, you know what IndyCar needs? Yeah. And I think it will explode. It mm-hmm. needs a, a Max. It needs a Daniel Ricciardo. It needs one of the popular Formula One drivers to move across that all the Americans love and watch yeah. it just I go think, gangbusters. I think that would be Danny Rick. If Danny Rick was to go, I think you would t- – I think if Danny Rick was to go to IndyCar – Hands down, he would take Michaela and <laughs> all the teeny bopper girls, as well as I would reckon at least ten percent of casual F one fans with him. Mm-hmm. But this is the thing about IndyCar: like IndyCar has been taken over by the Penske Group, and they've done a lot of great things since their time there to kind of build the sport up, build the grandeur of the Indy five hundred, etc. They've got. Carl Larson running in the Indy 500 next year with McLaren, which might not mean much to some, but if you're an American and you're the biggest population is interested in stock cars and you're taking one of their best drivers right now, you know, loved by all, uh, and putting him in the Indy 500, that's definitely going to take some eyes off of your competition. But if I'm Penske and I want to build IndyCar to be international, I want to give it the opportunity to go and race in Australia or in Mm. you know, overseas uh, and have the government say, hey, we're going to fund it. You just come and race. You don't have to worry about X, Y, Z expenditure. We want to use it as a tourism opportunity. Mate, you take someone like Danny Rick and you say, listen, how much do you want? We'll get you in one of the best cars. They've got the best cars. We'll pay you what you want. And then you give us your exposure. You give us your charisma and just give us a chance to build this thing. Like that's what I'd be doing. If he doesn't get in back into Formula One next year, I'd love to see him in IndyCar. Oh mate, it would it would it would be um it would be awesome. And I think what you've got in IndyCar now, like just to finish off on, is this melting pot of genuine talent. Hmm. You've got drivers that were, you know, in the Formula One scene that just didn't have the money, but in you know, all the junior categories were you know, on the way up, you've got people from the American scene, you've got young Australians and people that have raced in Australia that are either in IndyCar or in the feeder series. So you like you're getting all this international in- talent. IndyCar is a place where you can go see drivers from different championships come together and measure themselves. Mm-hmm. And they um, all measure up pretty well against each yeah, other. Like if you if you were to tell me that you'd get Scott McLaughlin, Roman Grosjean, uh, who's someone from another championship as well? Hello? I don't know. Hello from you. Uh, no, not Pelot, But who's someone who's like raced in like WEC, who's in IndyCar? No one's really done that. Have they? No, WC, not really. Yeah. But like, like, so even when you look at someone like Marcus Ericsson, the way I look at him now compared to how I looked at him when he finished up in Formula One, night and day difference. Got- like this is Indy 500 champion. And nearly back-to-back Indy 500 champion, uh, championship competitor last year, second in the championship this year. 
Like, I and this is this is the other thing. Like, you never knew what if he was a good driver because he was driving in a car that was three seconds slower on the lap than the Red Bull. He did get yeah. spanked by Leclerc, though. <laughs> well, yeah, well, fair enough. Like Leclerc's probably a level ahead of him, and if Leclerc was to race him in, you know, two go karts, he'd probably do the same thing. But I think what you do see also is like people like you've got people that are you can say like someone like Pagano or Castanovas who has raced not WEC but IMSA and being at the top of his game there goes into you know IndyCar and it's not like they're as dominant you know I mean there's it's a it's a much closer battle and the other thing that you see is different teams on a week in and week out basis sometimes get their cars right sometimes they get them wrong a team like Ray Hull who last year was absolutely killing it in IndyCar is really struggling this year with trying to you know figure something out um but gee wouldn't that wouldn't daniel ricardo in indycar be something oh i think i think that the car would suit him too just the raw rawness of them you know late braking all that sort of stuff like it's it's just all it's not as much technicality as there is in f1 these it's days inter- indycar is an international race away or an international audience away from blowing up mm. Well, this pod went left. Wasn't expecting Bloody to talk IndyCar tonight. Bloody well it did. But um, that was a good chat. I think we'll leave it there, boys. Thank I'll you, finish, finish the same way I always do. Please continue to like, subscribe, share, tag Daniel Ricciardo. Ask me if he wants to race IndyCar next year. Let's make something happen. Um, but Joe, Harry, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. And like always, keep chugging. Thanks, Megan. <laughs> keep chugging. <laughs> Yeah, so right, boys, have a good one. <laughs> there you are.